0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of All My Movies, and today we're going to be talking about the 1984 classic The Karate Kid, a classic for kids my age, which has been rejuvenated by the series Cobra Kai, which is now in its third season on Netflix. We're just going to be talking about The Karate Kid today. None of the sequels, not Cobra Kai, just the original film, how it was made, my thoughts on it, and maybe a few things about it that you might not have thought about yourself. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us and you want to check out the video version of the show, you can find All My Movies on the Schmodown Entertainment Network on YouTube. And if you're watching us on SEN and you want the to-go portable audio version of the show, you can find All My Movies as an audio podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. So I have an interesting history with The Karate Kid, which is that like a few other movies that people my age consider classics, I was born in 1983... I did not grow up with this movie. I didn't grow up with The Goonies. I didn't grow up with Karate Kid. The first time I remember seeing it, I was well into adulthood. But like other movies that really do work, no matter what age you are, I still enjoy The Karate Kid and and to this day enjoy it for a lot of reasons. And it has to start with the script. The script for The Karate Kid was written by Robert Mark Kamen, who has since gone on to become a frequent collaborator of Luc Besson on many of his films, starting with The Fifth Element. He's also behind The Resuscitate of Liam Neeson's career, at least as an action star in the Taken series. In the 1980s, Kamen, who also uh, was well-versed in martial arts, teamed up with producer Jerry Weintraub because they were both inspired by personal experience to tell the story of a young kid who just moved to town and decided to earn a black belt in karate to protect himself from bullies.
1: I had this great background in martial arts and and had a great love for it uh, and still do. And I had this film in my head For years, I just didn't think anybody would ever want to see it.
0: To direct The Karate Kid, the studio turned to a veteran director and already an Oscar winner for a Best Picture winner in 1976's Rocky, John G. Avildsen, who, since Rocky had come out, had been steadily working as a director, but had never really captured the cultural zeitgeist in the same way that Rocky did. With The Karate Kid, John G. Avildsen would come closer to capturing that Rocky magic than he did at any other point in his career. To start in the critical role of the Karate Kid himself, Daniel LaRusso, who was originally named Daniel Weber, the studio chose Ralph Macchio, who was a relative newcomer but had previously been in The Outsiders the year before in 1983. And despite playing a character who was 15 turning 16, Macchio was actually in his early 20s when the movie was shot. In the equally important role of Mr. Miyagi, Daniel's karate instructor, John G. Avilson selected Noriyuki Marita, who had been performing under the name Pat Marita for quite some time. Marita was born in 1932, but he was a first-generation American, and Marita and his entire family spent World War II in a Japanese internment camp. Following World War II, Morita worked several jobs to support his family, including a stint at Lockheed, but eventually decided to pursue comedy and found some success in a recurring role on the sitcom Happy Days as Arnold, the namesake of Arnold's diner on the show. And it was this comedic persona that led the studio to initially pursue different options for the role of Mr. Miyagi.
1: The studio suggested Toshiro Mufuni. And his Mr. Miyagi was a scary Mr. Miyagi. I don't know how, I don't know where it came from. Miyagi voice, Miyagi presence, Miyagi spirit emerged.
0: With the roles of Daniel and Mr. Miyagi set, the studio also needed to fill the role of Johnny, the bully that inspires Daniel to pursue the martial arts to begin with. And for this role, they chose a newcomer in William Zabka, who had very little acting experience. He was an experienced wrestler, but not an experienced martial artist, but fit the bill nicely and has the Karate Kid on his resume as his first feature film role. Also cast in one of her first feature film roles was Elizabeth Shue, who was selected to play Allie, the love interest of both Daniel and Johnny. And much like Ralph Macchio, despite playing a high school student, Elizabeth Shue was also in her early 20s. As the movie opens, Daniel LaRusso and his mother move from New Jersey to Los Angeles, California, in order for Daniel's mom to get trained as a restaurant manager. And initially, Daniel doesn't have a whole lot of trouble fitting in until he crosses the bully of the neighborhood, Johnny, at a beach party when he dares to talk to Johnny's ex-girlfriend, Allie.
1: Take a right, check it out. Hey, Johnny, forget it, man. It's ancient history. Who told
0: you? Man? Johnny is a student at a karate dojo called Cobra Kai, which is run by the ruthless sensei, John Kreese, a former U.S. Army karate champion who runs the dojo with military precision and operates under one rule, no mercy.
1: Mercy is for the weak. Here on the street in competition, a man confronts you, he is the enemy.
0: Now, according to the actor who played Kreese, Martin Cove, he wrote his own backstory for the character, essentially rooting Kreese's ruthless nature in his struggles with Vietnam, where a winning-is-everything mentality was constantly frustrated by the quagmire that he found himself in as part of the army. He then took that philosophy to Cobra Kai and started the dojo. Martin Cove himself is a pretty imposing guy. He's someone that I would be pretty nervous to meet. And he struck that note from the very beginning in a confrontation with director John G. Abelson after he was called in to read for the character much earlier than he had anticipated.
1: So I go in there and John Avildsen is there. I say, John, you're a real asshole. We as actors wait years to meet directors of your caliber. We fire our agents, we fire our managers. And here I'm given five days to prepare and now you want to see me in minutes. I said, you're a real asshole.
0: A lot of times we go back and we rejudge these movies from the 80s, and it's fun to do. It's not something I think we should take too seriously. But one thing that I have noticed, and particularly when I watched the movie this time, is that Cobra Kai and Johnny, as bullies, definitely crossed the line from 80s bullies to criminal behavior. You could probably ring them up on any number of felony charges. Stalking, assault, attempted murder. Johnny,
1: leave him alone, man. He's had enough. i on a when He's had enough, man.
0: I think this dynamic works because Ralph Macchio is really, really good as Daniel LaRusso. Now, a lot of these younger roles, you could cast an actor who was, you know, amiable, uh, maybe a step above your average kid actor, but doesn't really bring anything to that part. Ralph Macchio, I think, brings a lot to the part of Daniel, because first and foremost, you like him, and you feel for him, because he didn't ask to be in this situation. He's in a new town. He didn't really want to make the move, and I love what he's telling his mom that he wants to go home, because he doesn't know the rules where he is.
1: Yeah, well, I just want to go home. That's it. I don't understand the rules. do I, don't understand- yeah, yeah, I don't want to go home. Yeah,
0: oh. But you also have to believe that Daniel is capable of the sensitivity he shows in some scenes, but at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, being able to go and win a karate tournament against the biggest, baddest martial artists in town, or at least under 18 in the All-Valley Karate Championships. And I think he's able to do that because Machio also brings an edge and a swagger to that role. There is a sarcastic side to him. There is a side that is thumbing the nose a little bit at Johnny, sometimes in spite of himself. And Machio doesn't push the character too much one way or the other. And it's this balance that I think makes Daniel both relatable as a character and believable as somebody who could do what he does later in the film. And I think he's helped greatly by Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi, who brings his own balanced nature. He is a very wise man. He's a very quiet man, taciturn, thoughtful, but also capable of great feats of strength and capable of showing Daniel how to practice the martial arts, how to practice karate the way it should be done. Hey, what kind of belt do you have?
1: Canvas. You like? (laughs) J.C. Penny, 398.
0: I love the almost mythical way that Mr. Miyagi comes in and saves Daniel from Johnny and the Cobra Kai bullies on Halloween when they're about to, I think, kick his head off at that fence behind the apartment building. And there was something I noticed this one time, and, and I don't know, we've talked a lot of times, with film it's hard to tell, is something a coincidence? Is it an outright reference? But the shot when Daniel is laying on the ground, uh, looking up at Mr. Miyagi as he is fighting off the Cobra Kai, and there's a you know sort of a smeared lens effect, there's almost a mythical look as you're looking up at Mr. Miyagi, I kept trying to figure out what that reminded me of, and then it occurred to me that the shot is almost exactly the same shot that we see in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, on Weathertop, when Frodo is laying uh, prone, uh, basically after being attacked by his own version of ghouls, by the ring wraiths, and you see Aragorn come in uh, and defend him, and you have that same kind of low POV shot from behind the person who's protecting them. Because the ring is going on, there's that, that same kind of distortion effect. I don't know if that was a conscious effort for Peter Jackson to reference The Karate Kid, but if it is, I love the fact that he got a Karate Kid reference into a film about Middle Earth. There are a few key scenes in The Karate Kid, but I think the one that the movie really hinges on is one that was intended to be shot just like a regular scene where you get a master shot and then you go in and you get close-ups and different takes and angles but once the scene was done, John G. Avelson said, we don't need any more angles. It's perfect as it is. And that is the conversation between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi in Mr. Miyagi's hut behind the apartment building after Miyagi saves him from Cobra Kai. And there's a very touching and affecting dialogue in between these two characters. I think it's even more impressive that Avilson did not get coverage because then you have nothing to cut through. And if that one shot doesn't work, or even if a few lines inside of that one shot don't work, then you don't have a scene. You have to go back and get pickups, which can be expensive, sometimes impossible. It shows a great deal of trust from a director and his actors to know that they were able to nail such an important scene in one take.
1: Hey, you ever taught anyone? No. Well, would you? Depend. On what?
0: Reason. That relationship then blossoms in the multiple training scenes that we get, the famous wax on, wax off.
1: Wax on.
0: paint the fence, paint the house, sand the deck, all of these different things, these menial tasks that Mr. Miyagi gives Daniel to do, and I think it's understandable that Daniel doesn't exactly know what's going on. He doesn't know that he's being taught the fundamentals of martial arts until that scene when Mr. Miyagi demonstrates what he's been learning, and I love that scene where he finally puts everything together and tells him to do all these motions, and then the scene where Daniel is waving off the attack, it's almost like Neo in the Matrix, or I guess I should say Neo in the Matrix is like Daniel and the Karate Kid, every time I watch the movie, I love how that scene comes together. And, and it makes me want to go back in time to 1984 and sit in a theater with an audience the first time that they saw that scene, because I'm guessing that was probably a pretty big applause scene in the theatrical run of the movie. Yeah! The relationship between these two characters is so strong. And apparently this relationship building started before the movie even began, as Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita were going through their martial arts training. Pat Johnson, who we'll talk about a little bit later on, was in charge of doing all that. And he took different approaches to the different actors. He trained the Cobra Kai very much like Kreese did in a very militaristic way because he wanted to bring out that edge. Uh, But he's also said that he trained Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita together much of the time and was a little more gentle with them and allowed them to bond over their shared pain because they were not master martial artists and as a matter of fact they were practicing much of what they were doing for the very first time. Both of these gentlemen
1: were really good actors but not very physical people. The training was sort of relaxed and they had a lot of aches and pains so I let them kind of complain together. And they develop this wonderful little
0: relationship based on the sharing of their pain. One other thing I want to note about these training sequences, particularly the ones on the beach or during the day, is the fantastic cinematography of James Crave. The whole movie looks great, but he was a frequent collaborator of John G. Avildsen. He had already shot Rocky for him, and he was Oscar nominated for another film he did with Avildsen called The Formula. Intermixed with all this training are a couple of B storylines that the movie spends a little bit of screen time on, but you don't get a whole lot of background info about. The first one is the conflict between Daniel and Ally's family and where exactly both of these families live and why some of that conflict existed.
1: Dad, it's a friend. Not that boy from Reseda. Yeah, he's from Reseda.
0: It's established early on that Daniel's mother, who's a single mother, uh, is still in training. So they are probably a middle class to lower middle class family. They live in an area of the San Fernando Valley called Reseda alley it's established is very well to do. She and her family live in a different part of the San Fernando Valley, a little bit south of Reseda called Encino. There are a few key differences between Reseda and Encino that kind of inform the story. The first one being that Reseda is a much more diverse part of Los Angeles. It's majority Latino. Uh, It's also mostly lower class, middle class and lower middle class families. Encino's demographics are much less diverse. It's about 80% white or was uh, around the time that this movie was shot. Uh, It's much closer to the LA metro area, which means it's a much more expensive place to live, especially the hills where Allie and her family live. You're looking at more of a middle class, upper middle class, uh, and up a part of town. So yes, we touch on that class difference there a little bit, but it's not just kind of a slight difference of a boy from the wrong side of town or, or the new kid in town. There really was a stark class difference, even though these cities are only separated by a number of miles. I thought
1: that maybe you were more different. Yeah, we're different. I'm from Reseda.
0: You're from the hills. That's how
1: we're different. Why don't you just admit that you can't handle the situation the way it is
0: then? And you see the conflict between Allie and her parents because they want her with Johnny. They want her with the blonde country club kid. That's the kind of boy they want their daughter with. An Encino kid. They don't want this kid from Reseda sneaking around because they don't really see what he can have to offer their daughter. Following the country club scene, Daniel visits Mr. Miyagi, and we see him at his lowest in the movie, really the most weakness that we see Mr. Miyagi show.
1: Is this your wife? Hmm? I do not know you were married. Uh, damn beautiful, don't you think?
0: He's in his military uniform. He's mourning the death of his wife and their child, both of whom perished when his wife died due to complications from childbirth.
1: Regret the informed wife, son.
0: But when you dig deeper into that, you can see even more why this is such a painful moment and a painful memory for Mr. Miyagi. It's established that Mr. Miyagi's wife died in a place called Manzanar. Manzanar is one of the internment camps that were set up by the United States government after the attack on Pearl Harbor for the internment of Japanese American citizens, basically saying they couldn't be trusted not to aid the enemy. They were taken and put in these camps for many, many, many months. This was one of the great stains on America's history at a time when many say we were at our finest hour. This was one of our darkest days. And first of all, I'm sure that Pat Morita probably found it fairly easy to sympathize with Mr. Miyagi as a character in this moment because he himself experienced the same thing with his family during World War II. But there's an even crueler irony to the fact that Mr. Miyagi's wife died in a Japanese internment camp And that's that Mr. Miyagi was part of the 442nd Infantry Regiment. This is established in later films and also confirmed by Kamen, the screenwriter, and John G. Ellison himself. And the irony there is that the 442nd was made up largely of American citizens whose families were in internment camps back home. So while they were in the European theater mainly uh, fighting World War II, their families, were being held essentially as prisoners in their home countries. So we have here Mr. Miyagi, a Japanese American citizen whose wife and unborn child die in an internment camp while he's overseas fighting for the country that was holding them in that camp and yet performed his duties so well uh, that he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for Valor. And that also has some root in historical fact. As a matter of fact, the 442nd for its size is recognized still as the most decorated unit in the army. So not only did these Japanese American citizens largely go to fight for the United States in World War II, they did so with exceptional valor, only to come home to families that had been kept in internment camps, many of them themselves had already been in internment camps, and also treated in many parts of the United States like second-class citizens. So that is an extra well of pain for Pat Morita to draw on and for this character of Mr. Miyagi to experience in this moment. One other thing to note, and they go much deeper into Mr. Miyagi's roots in Okinawa in the sequels to The Karate Kid, but during World War II, Okinawa was particularly hard hit. It was a place of sustained and bloody battles, particularly in the later parts of the war. So you add all of these things up, the military service, the fact that he lost his wife, he lost his child. They were in an internment camp when he was serving the country overseas. And at the same time, his home island uh, was part of such bloodshed and pain and tragedy you really can understand why Mr. Miyagi, who is a very strong character in this film, and really the moral compass, the moral centerpiece. And I, you know, some people might say that this scene's a little out of character. Why do we see him in such these depths of despair? I think it only exemplifies why you should admire him more because any other person having gone through this could have turned bitter, could have turned negative or angry. The fact that Mr. Miyagi remains so optimistic and so willing to help is such an indicator of his character for someone who's gone through such pain and such tragedy later in life. And I love the way that Daniel shows his respect as he leaves by bowing to his sensei. I think it does close that circle of the complete trust relationship between those two characters. And as a matter of fact, the studio didn't want that scene in the movie, despite the fact that it would later be a very crucial scene for Pat Morita and his contribution to the film. Only after much push and pull did John G. Avildsen convince the studio to keep a scene which they said didn't move the story In the film
1: i get a call one day from jerry and and john studio executive powers that be want to throw that scene out i thought it was a terrific scene no cut it it just stops the movie let's keep moving
0: we are headed toward the third act and the most famous kick in cinematic history but first a word from our sponsor today's episode is brought to you by monk pack You know, now that the holidays are over, it's time for another annual tradition, struggling to keep your New Year's resolutions. I know it's something that I am guilty of every single year. And one of the hardest is that resolution to eat healthier because let's face it, the holidays just happen. We're used to big sugary snacks. It's hard to find something that fills that role. Well, enter Monk Pack. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three net grams of carbs, and they're only 150 calories. If you're doing the keto lifestyle or if you just wanna cut back on sugar and carbs, these Monk Pack bars are really great. You know, I have this thing when I'm trying to do a diet or when I'm trying to eat better. I think that if it's small, then it's good for me. This is what Monk Pack is great for because it's got that sweet taste, but without all the bad effects. I don't have to worry about looking at the calorie count on one of those bars. Is this one more than that bar? With Monk Pack, I know what I'm getting. It's gonna be a great tasting snack. I know what the calories are and it's gonna fit into the changes I wanna make in my lifestyle. And they come in a lot of different flavors like sea salt, dark chocolate, pecan almond and peanut butter, dark chocolate. And the peanut butter, dark chocolate one is the one that's my favorite so far because you get that balance. I really love the sweetness of the peanut butter and you also get the sweetness of the chocolate, but they have that little bitterness that you get with a dark chocolate. I love the combination along with the crunch of the seeds and the nuts. It really is a great mixture of what I love. And it's a great snack for me to just grab anytime during my day. You know, I'm up here, I'm doing podcasts, I'm hosting, I'm doing charts, I'm doing all kinds of things. I can run downstairs, I can grab a Monk Pack keto nut and seed bar. I can come right back up. It takes me 30 seconds and it's filling. I don't have to stop for a meal 20 minutes later because this was a great snack. And the great news is you don't even have to run to the grocery store to grab Monk Pack because they will deliver it right to your door. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And we have a very special deal for our listeners. You can get 20% off of your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code MOVIES at checkout. And MonkPak is so confident in their product, it is backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M U N K P A C K.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And I'd like to thank them for sponsoring our show.
1: You know, points or no points, you're dead
0: meat. Following all this training and a a brief lover's quarrel between Daniel and Allie, we finally arrive at the All Valley Karate Championship, the final showdown between Daniel and the Cobra Kai. We know which way it's going to go, but it's still great to watch every time, and that's probably because it starts with one of the best 80s montage songs ever written. The music for that song was written by Bill Conti, but the lyrics were done by Allie Willis. She would also contribute lyrics to one of the most iconic songs of the 90s that a lot of people still have in their head. I love how this tournament is structured, and I think that John G. Avildsen and his editors and the team behind the movie sort of know that we really just are rolling downhill at this point, and we want to see this confrontation. The Karate Kid is about a two-hour movie, so it's not like we're at minute 70 here. I think they know that we're really gaining ahead of steam, and I love the fact that we don't belabor the point. We really just want to set up this final showdown. It's also worth noting that the main referee that we see throughout the tournament is Pat Johnson, the legendary martial artist who trained all of the key actors for this film. And outside of his contributions to The Karate Kid, he was in Enter the Dragon, uh, he worked with Bruce Lee, and he worked with a lot of other big names in the world of martial arts.
1: I worked with uh, Bruce Lee, I worked with his son Brandon, I worked with Chuck Norris, I've worked with Jackie Chan. When working with these men, I learned a lot by watching them,
0: making suggestions, in developing my own style. So we get to the semifinals and Kreese basically puts a hit out on LaRusso. He wants him out of the tournament. He doesn't want to be embarrassed. And so he orders one of his Cobra Kai guys to take out Daniel's knee, which he does. He gets the Cobra Kai fighter disqualified, but by Kreese's reckoning Johnny's not going to have an opponent to face in the finals. It both defeats Miyagi and Daniel and elevates Cobra Kai up to the top. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we have a very determined champion in Daniel LaRusso, although again by today's standards, I don't think there is any chance that he would be allowed to go back out there and fight in that final to basically tough out what looked to be like a dislocated kneecap or torn ACL but in today's litigious times i can promise you that the all valley karate championships lawyers would not allow daniel larusso to hobble out there and fight one more climactic fight and really cinema history would be much less rich for it daniel LaRusso
1: is
0: I think that the real climax of the movie starts at that moment where Daniel asks Mr. Miyagi to fix his knee and we get the repetition of the hand clap and then rubbing them together from Pat Morita. And the thing that takes that over the top is that Bill Conti music sting that we get in that moment. And here's the thing about Bill Conti. As a film composer, he knows what his job is. And I love his philosophy on music and the fact that he makes no apologies about manipulating your emotions with his music. As a matter of fact, that's his goal. Because it's that ultimate fantasy,
1: that non-literate thing is going into your ears, and I have control over your emotions if you're listening. If you're gone, you're going in the third reel. Second reel. I don't like this movie. If If you're there in the 11th reel, I got you.
0: After Daniel evens things up in the final match between Johnny, Creese orders Johnny to finish the job, to sweep the leg. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. I do want to praise William Zabka or Billy Zabka or however you want to say his name for his acting in that moment where Creese tells him to sweep the leg. You could overplay that moment, but I love the way his eyes search Creese's face. It's basically this moment where the veil falls from this father figure, this person that he, I'm sure, thought was infallible. And you see his conflict in that moment. But it's a very subtle performance. And it's very well played by William Zabka in the moment. And I think it's a little moment that might be lost along the way, but one that deserves to be pointed out. No mercy. And then we have the crowning moment of the film, the famous crane kick that wins the karate championship for Daniel. He gets the girl, he defeats the bullies, he gets a nod of approval from his sensei. And it is this move, even though the character Daniel LaRusso made look fairly effortless, that the actor Ralph Macchio had a lot of trouble with.
1: Initially, that move was uh, described as standing on one leg because his, his knee was hurt. And it was standing on one leg, jumping, kicking with that same leg, and landing back on that same leg.
0: Found this physically impossible. And then the movie just ends. And I always forget about how abruptly this movie is over. I do wish that we had maybe 30 seconds to a minute more of Karate Kid. I felt like Johnny needed a little bit more of a beat than just like, you're all right, LaRusso, here's a trophy, I'm gonna go cry in the corner or whatever else goes on. We do get that coda at the beginning of the next movie. I really think that it's the case of John G. Avelton saying, listen, we know what the climax of the film is. We don't want them to be looking to grab their hats or checking their watches or leaving before the credits roll. Let's just have him kick Johnny in the face and call it a day. But I wish there was just a little bit extra time every time i watch the movie to just give maybe one or two of these characters something to do before the movie ends we would have two more sequels and a sequel series and everything else to do that but you don't know that in the moment and that's what i think is important Something I thought was very interesting as I was looking at people's opinions on the movie and particularly people that know martial arts is that a lot of martial artists felt like The Karate Kid was the first movie or at least one of the first movies that actually got the philosophy of it right. And Pat Johnson talks about this when he discusses the film and why he enjoyed working on it. They actually were able to convey the mechanics and the mindset of what a successful martial artist should be, at least to those who do practice martial arts. John Kreese
1: somehow missed the boat And he thought only of the physical, so his students were never balanced. They were not spiritual, they had a physical thing. And when the physical thing didn't work, they had nothing to fall back on. But this young man, in spite of the pain that he was feeling and the injuries, he had the
0: spirit to go on. He went beyond the physical any triumph. When The Karate Kid was released in 1984, it surprised people in a few different ways. First of all, it was fairly successful with the critics, which is surprising because this is the kind of movie that usually skews a little young that critics might not like, but to varying degrees, Critics were wowed by the movie.
1: Marginal thumbs up for me. It gets a big thumbs up for me, and especially because of Pat Morita as that Japanese-American janitor who's going to teach him all the moves. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a great performance, and I didn't think that the training scenes were predictable.
0: The Karate Kid opened on June 22, 1984, and actually came in fifth place, which for most movies would be a death knell. It was a different time. Release patterns were a little bit different, and this was a big word-of-mouth movie. The four movies ahead of it when it when it opened were Ghostbusters, gremlins indiana jones and the temple of doom and maybe the biggest classic out of all of them the dolly parton sylvester stallone musical comedy rhinestone you remember rhinestone don't you probably not The Karate Kid did really hit a chord with audiences, though, and it ended up being the fifth highest grossing film of 1984, and it was a stacked year. Ahead of it on the charts were Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Ghostbusters and Gremlins, which are all in theaters when the movie opened, and then the number one film of 1984, Beverly Hills Cop, which was an absolute sensation. After being made on a budget of about 8 million dollars, The Karate Kid ultimately pulled in over 100 million dollars in worldwide revenue, and the surprises kept coming because there's one more accolade for the film that Roger Ebert himself saw coming, but that Gene Siskel didn't think was a very real possibility.
1: Pat Morita, I think, a possible for an Oscar nomination if the movie does it at the box office. No opening. way.
0: Yes way, Gene. Pat Morita was nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the 1985 Academy Awards. He ended up losing the award to Hang S. Noor for The Killing Fields. Noor, by the way, is currently the only person of Asian descent who has ever won the Best Supporting Actor award. Following the film, The Karate Kid launched three direct sequels, The Karate Kid Part 2, The Karate Kid Part 3, and The Next Karate Kid, starring a young Hilary Swank. There was also the 2010 remake, starring Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan, and as I mentioned before, Cobra Kai, the follow-up series that's now in its third season, that has a creative team that were all kids when the first movie came out. So really, first-generation Karate Kid fans now bringing Cobra Kai and everything to a new generation, which is how we've seen it work with so many other franchises these last several years, from Star Wars to Karate Kid and elsewhere. People that grew up with these movies are now reinventing them, repackaging them, and bringing them to a new audience. In addition to all of the remakes and spinoffs, of course, there were the obligatory video games, action figures the
1: karate Kid and Johnny are each sold separately and for more action look for the karate Kid Competition Center from Remco
0: and a very short-lived 1989 animated series karate Kid. The karate Kid is also credited with inspiring a huge boom in karate classes here in the United States. There was an explosion of kids who decided that they wanted to learn the martial arts an explosion that went throughout the 80s and 90s and in many ways into today. For all of the cast members, though, the Karate Kid has become something that is ingrained in their daily lives. And I can see how that might be something that you would resent over time, but it really does seem like a lot of the actors felt a sense of family spring up around this film. And these are sentiments that Pat Morita shared in an interview that he did before his death. It brought me a family.
1: A family of... of wonderfully diverse people and backgrounds. And I'm not simply referring to caste and, and, and the powers that be, and, but a beingness of belonging, finally, to this family of earth.
0: And of course, with the renewed interest and revisiting these characters, there is a complete and wholesale recontextualizing going on of this movie, particularly the original Karate Kid with the new season of Cobra Kai. Full disclosure, I have not yet watched Cobra Kai. I've heard that it's great, and I've been meaning to watch it. Now that I just revisited Karate Kid, I think I'm probably going to watch it soon. But even the little pieces of information, as much as I try to stay spoiler-free, I've heard that there are things in the show that really encourage you to take a different look at this movie, to recontextualize everything you know. And that, once again, establishes something that I love about movies and really about art in general, which is that over time, with very few exceptions, unless we're talking about a Star Wars movie or Ridley Scott doing his 18th different version of Blade Runner, these movies don't change. The frames don't change, the cuts don't change, the takes and the dialogue don't change, the script doesn't change, the music doesn't change. We change around the movie. And what we're now seeing for a lot of people is the audience changing around the Karate Kid, looking at Johnny in a different way, looking at Daniel LaRusso in a different way, adding to our understanding of these characters. And all of this we now bring to this movie that hasn't changed. And I think that that is great as a film fan. Loving movies isn't static, and loving a movie isn't something that is set in stone. It is a fluid process, and the fact that this movie was made back in 1984, 37 years ago, and there are still people revisiting it and debating it, just goes to show you, and I've said this many times, that a great story truly is timeless, even if we add other chapters to it, long after we thought the book was closed. As always, I love to talk about the actual physical copy that I have of The Karate Kid, and this is an edition that came out, I'm not really sure when. It's not a particularly recent edition of the film, but it's got a good-looking print of the movie. That's usually enough for me to keep it around. There are a couple of behind-the-scenes features called The Way of the Karate Kid Part 1 and The Way of the Karate Kid Part 2 that go into some interesting stories about the making of the film. I've shared some of those clips here on this episode. There's also a special feature solely dedicated to Pat Johnson and his work on the film, called Beyond the Form, where he talks about training the cast members, his personal philosophy with the martial arts, and why he thinks the movie has worked so well over the years. There's a feature called East Meets West with Bill Conti as he talks about composing the score of the film and how he came up with the feel of the movie. There's also a 10 minute feature just about bonsai trees. It doesn't really connect to the movie other than the fact that the movie has bonsai trees in it, but it's kind of relaxing just to hear about the art form and the history, etc. It's a nice little side road after the movie. And finally, there is a commentary track with Pat Morita, Ralph Macchio, John G. Abelson, and writer Robert Mark Kamen. And I was actually looking forward to the commentary track because they were in the same room, which is always great. But it turns out sometimes you can't get too much of a good thing because it is an entertaining track in that they love to talk and laugh about the movie. But if you're looking for great insight into how it was made, you're not going to find a lot of that. It, mainly, it's a lot of very enthusiastic discussion and half-formed thoughts as everybody talks and interrupts. Each other. It's like listening to a group of friends remember something that you weren't there for, entertaining while you're in the room, but you wish that it was just a little more focused. And that wraps up my look at 1984's The Karate Kid. Like I said before, if you're watching us, thank you so much for watching. You can check out the audio version on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to find your audio podcast. If you're listening to us and you want to see the video version, check us out over at the Schmodan Entertainment Network. I'll be back with another in-depth look at one of my movies next week, but until then, it's time to go back on the shelf. Thanks for watching.